Welcome to this week's sermon from Knox Evangelical Presbyterian Church, located in Kenmore, New York. Our senior pastor is Justin Olivetti. To reach Knox Church, please email us at office at knoxepc.com or call us at 716-873-2423. Now, let's listen. Please stand with me as we read God's holy word. Starting in verse 32, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the son of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink? or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink, and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. May God bless this reading of his word. Please have a seat. In 1193, King Richard the Lionheart, you remember him from your history books, he was leading a crusade and he was on his way back from a crusade in the Holy Lands. And as he was traveling through Europe, he was actually captured by the Duke of Austria. And the Duke sent a letter to England and said, if you want your king back, here's my demand. You will have to give us three tons of silver. Three tons of silver. It was an incredible, almost outrageous demand for one person. Three tons of silver. Yet the English loved King Richard so much that all the peasants gladly underwent extra taxes that year. And the nobles dug deep into their treasuries. And three tons of silver was eventually raised and Richard's freedom was purchased. And then, right there, was where the term, a king's ransom, was born. So you can impress all your friends at Trivia Night. I don't know if you've ever wondered how much your friends and family might pay to ransom you back if you were ever kidnapped. Maybe they would actually pay the kidnapper to keep you longer? I'm not sure. Depends on who you are. But I'm sure that none of us would consider ourselves worth three tons of silver. It's a lot. 
Yet someone paid even more than that for you. 1 Corinthians 7 tells us that Jesus bought you with a price. He didn't get you out of the free bin. He bought you with a price. He ransomed you from your sin. So when we get to today's account in Mark, and we look at how there's this crucial point in the Gospel to understanding the purpose and the ministry of the Lord. In fact, it's probably the centerpiece of all of Mark. And I don't want to understate it here. Right here is, is where we get to the most important part. And at the center of the centerpiece is you. You are right there. You are the person being ransomed. You are the person who has a king's ransom hanging over your head. And Jesus is dealing with that. So let's take a look at this today. So while we're on the topic of, of popular phrases, perhaps you know where the term scapegoat came from. Hopefully we're, we're good Presbyterians. We know our church history. Maybe you've gone, decided to read through the Bible, right? And you've decided, January 1st, I'm going to read through the entire Bible. And then you get bogged down somewhere in Leviticus. Well, in Leviticus 16, at least go that far, because there we see where the term scapegoat comes from. Once a year, the high priest, all the people would gather on the Jewish Day of Atonement. And there the high priest would take a goat. This poor goat never did anything to hurt anybody, didn't do so much as headbutt a single kid. And they would get this goat, and they would sprinkle it with blood. And then the high priest would lay his hands on the head of this goat and would confess the sins of the entire nation. I have no idea how long it took, hopefully less than a day. But it took a while, and he would confess the sins of the nation. And then they would bring the goat, and they would lead it to the edge of the community, kick the goat out. And they would send the goat wandering into the desert, cast out of the community forever to be their scapegoat, wandering forever with the curse of the people's sins on his head, bearing the sins of a community that rejected it. Now this was all in preparation for the greatest object lesson that Israel would ever get. They didn't understand at the time why God wanted them to use a goat, why they had to do this sprinkling of the blood and laying the hands on and, and cursing this goat with the sins. They wouldn't understand until this day arrived here that Jesus explained to his apostles that he was to become their scapegoat. So on that day, Jesus sets out, he's, remember he's doing this this forced, determined march toward Jerusalem. And he sets his face, as Isaiah predicted, like a flint. He's determined. He's resolute. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going there not to be crowned king, but of course to die. He's marching there. And you see that this emotional reaction from the disciples and from all, his, all of his followers. They're astonished at his determination. They're afraid of what's going to come and then he shares with them these distressing details of exactly what's going to happen. Yet another prophecy of his upcoming death and resurrection. And this time, he's very specific in the details. He goes into, into very morbid details. And he says, basically, like a scapegoat, he says, I am going to be cast out of the Jewish nation. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles, to those outsiders where I will be bloodied and be made a curse for the very people I came to save. In fact, when we're saved, one of the things that happens when you are, are come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ 
is that your sins are pronounced and laid on the head of Jesus. They are transferred off you just like the sins of the community were transferred onto the heads of the goat. Your sins are transferred onto the head of Jesus Christ. That's why we should not be in a rush to sin even more. Every sin in your life, the past, present, and future, are named and put onto Jesus' head. Can you imagine if you saw that? You saw the high priest put his hand on the head of Christ on the cross and name your sin. Name the sin that you did yesterday. Name the sin you did last week. Would we be in such a rush to go out tomorrow and sin that same sin again? Or do what we did yesterday? So we need to first look at how our king handled this. And as we see him taking those sins on himself, becoming our scapegoat, we should really start to struggle with our sins. We should become soft to them. They should be painful to us. Knowing that every time we sin, that sin is immediately transferred over onto the head of Jesus Christ as he hangs on that cross. And it should make us not want to sin more. Every sin we do, from small or large, is added to the king's ransom. And that king's ransom grows larger and larger every day. And we should not take that lightly. You think after such a heavy announcement, the disciples would at least be encouraging Jesus, Jesus, we're with you, man. We're going to be praying for you. Instead, look at what it happens like immediately after Jesus tells them, I'm going to be flogged and die. I'm going to be cast out for the sins of the community. And the disciples go, yeah, but Jesus, who's going to sit on your right and left when you go to heaven? Like, what, what a tonal shift here. They're, they're, they're going right back to this bickering, this argument we heard a couple of weeks ago about who's the greatest. Who's going to get to sit at the best spots? And James and John figure they're, they're, going, to, they're going to leapfrog the rest of the disciples. The sons of Zebedee are going to say, well, Jesus, you know, who gets, who's going to get the best seats in heaven? Back when I was doing youth work, one of the things, anytime we would go on a mission trip or go on an event, anytime we'd go into a car, there was this tradition we had of calling shotgun. You guys do this? You've seen kids do this. That the rule is, if you're in sight of the car and you're the first person to yell shotgun, you get the second most coveted seat in that car next to the driver. You get the, the front passenger seat, that shotgun. Now, we had an extended rule. that Some people didn't like the shouting part. They said, whoever got to the car first and put their hand on the car first got shotgun. And unfortunately, that led to wrestling matches. It led to kids tackling other kids on the way to the car. And once we were on a mission trip, and two boys arrived at that front passenger side door at the same time, and one boy yanked it open because he figured he was going to get right into the car. And he opened the car door so hard that the corner slashed across the other boy's calf. And that was the, one of only two times I've ever had to take a kid to the hospital on a mission trip. It's because they were shouting shotgun and trying to get into that coveted seat. And that's exactly what J James and John are doing here. I mean, let's not, let's not make this a great, noble thing that they're doing. They're shouting, shotgun, Jesus, you're going to heaven. Shotgun, I want right next to you. I want the other seat. They're number two and number three seats, right? If you got the king, the king's seat's right here. The, these two seats are the most coveted, next two most coveted seats. In Matthew 19, 
We actually read, and I'm sure you studied this in uh, young, uh, your adult Sunday school class, that Jesus told them, promised them, all the apostles, that they would get a throne in heaven. We see that in Revelation. There are 12 thrones in heaven, 12 apostles. They are sitting on a throne in heaven right now. They got a throne in heaven. So that wasn't enough reward for them, apparently. Not enough for James and John. They figured that there had to be like a couple thrones that maybe had a booster seat or something, that they were a little, little higher up than the rest, right? And the sons of thunder make a play to get the best seats. And we read about how arrogantly, did you, did you get that when we were reading the scriptures there? How arrogantly they asked Jesus? They didn't just say, Jesus, can we have some, some really good seats here? They said, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we say. Just give us you know, a blank check to whatever request we make next. And Jesus says, okay, what do you want? They say, we want, we want these seats. It's sometimes how we pray to God, isn't it? I don't go, God, please, in your will, if this is your will, will you please do this? We say, God, I really want you to do this thing. You should do this thing now. Why haven't you done this thing yet? We have this kind of arrogance as we go before the throne of God. Of course, the sons of thunder don't know what they're asking for here. They want all of the glory without accepting that the path to that glory goes right through the cross. The path to that glory goes right through the cross. And Jesus then asks them, and they say, he says, are you really willing to join me in my suffering? Are you willing to accept the cup of God's wrath and drink deeply of that? Are you willing to undergo the baptism of the cross and hang there? And James and John, they talk big, don't they? Of course we can. No problem, Jesus. Yeah, we're with you all the way. Well, we talk a big talk too. Yeah, when Jesus is arrested, James and John are two of the first people right out the door, right? Jesus gets arrested. They're nowhere to be seen. And when Jesus is hanging on the cross, instead of James and John being on the right and left of him, he's got two criminals for his company. James and John. John's there, but he's kind of in hiding, and James is nowhere to be seen. There was no way, of course, for James and John to handle the exact level of suffering that Jesus did. The spiritual punishment that Jesus bore for us was greater than any one person could ever take. And yet, the king, our king, took on himself what we could not, all to ransom us. He felt the lash of the whip. He heard and endured the scorn of the crowd. He hung there in excruciating pain on the cross, all while the wrath of God was directed solely down on him for the sins of his people, for the curse that he bore as our scapegoat. Yet even though the apostles and we could not undergo the suffering of the cross, we are invited to share in it and to identify with it. Romans 8 tells us that if we are his children, then we are also his heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. Remember, this is the king naming us his heirs. And then it says this, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we might also share in his glory. You don't get one without the other. You don't get the glory without the suffering. The path to the cross the path to glory leads through the cross. Knowing that our king handled what we could not, I think, helps us today right here 
to accept the suffering that is part of every Christian's journey. If anybody ever tells you becoming a Christian gets easier from there, they are, they are selling you a different gospel than the one that's in that Bible. Our king tells us that we have a great reason to rejoice. We do have glory ahead, but in the present day there will be suffering. But that glory keeps us going, doesn't it? Keeping our eyes on that prize, fixed on Jesus, knowing that one day we will get such a reward that it will make any pain and suffering we endured in this life seem trivial, seem like nothing. And that is all ahead of us, waiting. So in reaction to the squabble over who sits where in heaven, Jesus then turns around and he chides them. He says, you guys, you're acting exactly like the Roman rulers would. You're acting exactly like they would. Abusing your power and position, having this abusive mentality that you want to lord over people from your thrones. He says, not so in my kingdom. That's not how it's going to happen. Jesus says, in my kingdom, the higher up you go, the greater the servants you're going to find. So, you really want to climb the ladder in God's kingdom? you got to become greater and greater servants. You become a greater slave instead of a greater ruler. And that's when we get to the key verse in Mark, and I'm going to put it right up here, because if you sleep through the rest of my sermons, if you remember nothing else about Mark, remember this verse. This here is the key verse of all of Mark. It's the one where Jesus said to them, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Not for all, but for many. Finally, Jesus gets past what was going to happen to him, to the why. Sometimes we need to know the why. Why was he going to the cross? Why was his face set like a flint and he's marching right toward Jerusalem almost as if he couldn't wait to die for his people? And Jesus sums up his entire life, his entire ministry in that one single sentence and illuminates, I think, every action he's taken, every action that's to come. This king, our king, unlike every king who has ever lived, makes the conscious decision to rule as a humble servant. That's his choice that he makes. And more than that, more than just ruling as a servant king, he makes a choice to give his life, the most precious life in all of the kingdom, as a ransom for his people, for his enemies. I mean, think about the alternative. Think about what could have happened, what people expected the Messiah to come down and do to rule from a palace. He deserved that. He deserved to have people waving palm fronds at him to keep him cool, feeding him grapes, giving him all the wealth and comfort, having an army at his back, having all the the prestige, having people bowing to him every minute of the day. And yet our king chooses a different path. Our king chooses to be a servant who is nailed to a piece of wood for you because he wants to redeem you. Reminds me of the end of the film Schindler's List. I might have mentioned this before, but that scene always is so poignant to me. Rosser Schindler breaks down. He's about ready to go at the end of the war, and he realizes that he could have given more of his wealth to save even more Jews from the Nazi Holocaust. And so he says, my ring, this ring could have bought one more person. My car could have bought three more people. He was kind of haunted 
by this feeling that he could have done more to ransom even more people, that it wasn't enough. He didn't do enough. And yet our king, his ransom is more than enough to cover every single person who throws themselves on the mercy of God and says, Lord, please come into my life. His life is more than enough for that ransom. It is enough to buy and redeem every single person. And I want you to just try to imagine how many people that is. How many souls that should be going to hell have instead been ransomed by the Father, by the Son, by the Holy Spirit. Millions, billions, we have no idea. But there will be a host in heaven. When we go to heaven, we see the crowd there. And our eyes will light up and we will rejoice. And we will say, way to go, Jesus. Way to go. You ransomed every single person here. And he says, welcome home. I've ransomed you too. And Let me be clear here as we talk about this word ransom, purchasing somebody with a price. The purchase here is not buying Satan off, giving Satan a ransom and saying, these people were in your clutches, Satan, and I'm buying you back from them. No, this ransom is from the Father. You see, we deserve the eternal punishment of having the Father's holy wrath upon us because of our sins, because of our rebellion. That is the ransom that Christ pays. So that instead of you being on the cross, you suffering in eternity of, of the Father's wrath, Jesus does instead. We have a fancy term for that. We call that substitutionary atonement. Christ atoned for you as a substitute. He took your place instead. That was the ransom that he, he gave for you. So what does this all mean? As we look at the king's ransom, as we look at what he paid for you, first it means that we are freed from our sin and our due punishment that, that we should have had. You are free. No matter what, you are free. That sin no longer sticks to you. It, it is named and it is put on Jesus' head instead. For the rest of your life, your sins are His. And they are no longer your own. Secondly, it also means that we were bought with a price. And we should always consider that how we live in our life. Our response to that ransom shouldn't be going like, well, this is great. I should go out and sin even more. I should live my life the way I want to. Instead, I think Jesus right here very show, shows us very clearly how we should live a radically different life once we are saved from our sins. And that radically different life should model the king's life as he says right here. Philippians 2 gives us very clear instructions when it says, do nothing in your life out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility, value others more than yourself not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of other people. Hear that self-sacrificing quality there? In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. What would Jesus do? What would the king do? What would the king servant do for others? Do likewise. When you follow the king, you're embracing the same identity that he had. You become a servant all. This world is your service ground. You go out and serve. You learn to love others as greater than yourself. And boy, is that hard when sin teaches you that you're number one and that you're all that matters. And Christ turns around and he says, no, these people matter. 
because you might be saved and redeemed, but these people are not. I want you to go share with them the gospel. I want you to go love them as I've loved them. I want you to be the face of me in this world. That's your challenge. That's your task. That service could look like a thousand different things. There's no one template here. But at the root of it all is a king who became a scapegoat for you, who bore what you could not on his shoulders, and who gave his life as a ransom for your own. When you consider how great a ransom that is, I don't think it's so hard for us to swallow those harsh words that we are just about to say to somebody else. I don't think it's so hard for us to give up our our time and our effort to help somebody who's obviously in need, to listen to somebody who needs to be listened to, to pray for them, to love them. Remember, your calling as a Christian is not to be served, but to serve. Our king did that, and we can do no less. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, my greatest prayer today is that all of us, myself included, that this church would become a church of servants. A church that would go out into this community, go out into this world, go out into our relationships, go out into our families, and we would serve others in your name, gladly, happily, doing it for you out of our love and appreciation of how great a ransom you paid for our life. Lord, thank you. Lord, we are so sorry for our sins, but thank you so much for taking them on your head and becoming a curse for us. And all God's people said, Amen. If you want to get to know the one true foundation, if you want to get to know your Lord and Savior who paid a price for you, or you want a a prayer over you this morning, we'll have an elder in the front just to talk with you and pray with you. Please receive the benediction. Now may the Lord bless you, May the Lord keep you and make his face shine upon you and give you peace this week. Go in God. Amen.